Video games, one of our favorite pastimes. But what if video games could be movies? That's what filmmakers Steven Linsberger and Donald Kushner set out to do with their groundbreaking part CGI, part backlit animation spectacle that against all odds spawned numerous spin-offs. Greetings programs, we're talking about Tron. Welcome back, everybody, to our next set of Franchise Follies, and this is going to be an interesting one. Miles, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. How are you doing tonight? Doing all right. I should say, when I shouldn't date us like it's, it's at a night that we're recording. You always this. have this problem. I always assume every podcast takes place at night. I don't know. Some podcast Any podcast I'm ever on, I say goodnight. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. I say goodnight. <laughs> well, this this is going to be a pretty big episode because we're talking, uh, unlike past uh, past episodes of Franchise Follies, where we've talked about a really great movie and a really terrible movie, we're talking about two pretty good movies, and we need to bring in some extra help. So I'd like to introduce to you guys Travis Crawford, a.k.a. TV's Travis. Welcome to The More You Nerd. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so, for coming on the show. Uh, so you guys might have heard Travis on his show, Wait, You Haven't Seen? Uh, which I was actually lucky to be a part of talking about Judge Dredd and Dredd. Those are two different movies uh, not right. that long ago. and <laughs> Also movies we probably could have done for this month as well. <laughs> probably so. Uh, w- yeah. Just different interpretations. That would actually have been a good... Never mind. We'll move on from that. <laughs> uh, and and uh, j- your movie... Er- Listen to me. Podcast. Your, your podcast, thank you, focused on introducing people to movies that they haven't seen or them introducing movies to that, that you haven't seen. Uh, Correct. Where can people find that just so they can pause this episode and go listen to uh, a fantastic stream and show? <laughs> well, uh, I stream it live Sunday nights on uh, Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash TV's Travis. Um, or you can go to tvstravis.com and there's a big subscribe button there to get the podcast. And we brought you in because you are a Tron fan. I am. I am. I uh, I actually I saw Tron the for the first time the original movie. I was probably I had to have been five or six. Um, I'm I'm just slightly older than the movie itself is. Uh, so I saw it pretty young, um, and I actually had uh, an Atari twenty six hundred, and I had a Tron video game for that um, called Tron wow. Deadly Discs as well. Uh, so I was played it a lot of that. Like it was, you were one character and there would, uh, three others would come onto the screen and you had the, the disc that you would throw to take them out and it would bounce mm-hmm. off the sides. And it basically, to my memory had no end. It just got harder and harder until it beat you and you were just racking up a score. Hmm. So you would, you would clear the screen out and then it like a different color set of bad guys would come on and you would take them out and you had that they would move faster. They would move more uh, in a different pattern and they would throw discs at you. But yeah, I had that. And then I remember the Tron uh, arcade game as well, because the light cycle level in that was mm-hmm. the one I always wanted to play whenever I'd get to go to an arcade that had it. Interesting. 
I ha- I'm going to have some some questions about the Tron games uh, if, if you are aware of them. But let's get into some of the background. Uh, so the story of Tron starts in the 1970s when Steven Linsberger, who was an animator at the time, encountered for the very first time the game Pong. Which it's very funny that this is coming up because the <laughs> the the, the disc flinging. Seems mm-hmm. very similar to Pong, and I'm just now making this connection as we are talking about it right here. <laughs> uh, but he wanted to do something to bring games to theaters, so he started working on a concept. And at the time, he found video games and computers in general to be a little clickish, uh, and he wanted to do something that that went uh, kind of opened up that idea. Uh, to to other people and I and and as we get into talking about the film, I think there's some interesting commentary there. Uh, so we ended up partnering with with a producer David Kushner, and they started shopping their idea around to different studios. I'm I'm just laughing at the idea of then them thinking computer game like people were clickish because wow, just wait 30 years. <laughs> it hasn't gotten better. <laughs> no, it, it has. It has gotten bigger, but uh, yes. but it is. It is interesting about this timing because this is 1982, so it's right before the what's called the great video game crash of of 83. And so video games are still kind of riding high in terms of arcade games. And they weren't necessarily unpopular. They were places that, you know, people hung out. It's what a lot of at least the three of us would have memories of going to an arcade. Um, And this movie was initially conceived as an animated film bookended by live live action sequences. Linsberger had difficulty financing the film, though, and after being turned down by uh, WB, MGM, and Columbia, he decided to take his chances with Disney, who was initially interested after watching some of the test footage that they had independently developed. But they were really worried because they they were going to give $10 to $12 million at the time to a first-time producer and a first-time director using techniques which, in most cases, had never been attempted. But... They were impressed enough by the footage that they agreed to finance the film. So with the studio asking for a rewrite and re-storyboarding the film, they greenlit it with Disney creative input. And this is funny because if you hear stories about it, the in-house Disney animation studios at this point were very supposedly, according to, to what has been reported, cold to the Tron team because they looked at them like, oh, you're going to be computers in here? Oh, the, uh, the, we're hand animators. We're all of this. And it wouldn't, of course, be that long until hand or until CG animation was used in... Uh, what was the first CG animation used? I think it was the Staircase. Was it, and, was it Aristocats? No, couldn't have been that. No, that was before. I, I, wanna, I thought it was the Rescuers. Uh, Rescuers Down Under. Yeah. Yeah, Rescuers Down Under. Yeah. Because uh, I think that came out right before Little Mermaid, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Or was Little Mermaid yeah, the last was... one that had no CG in it? Uh, that might have been the last one without CG, because then after that was also Beating the Beast, which had some in it. Yes. Um, so I think it was The Rescuers Down Under. Uh, but so so it's it's very very funny that that like the the Disney animation studio they mm-hmm. kind of thought that this CG team was going to try to undercut them and kind of take their jobs away from them and, and redo everything. And it's very funny, of course, thinking about Disney here in 2020 as we're recording this, when some of the it's most awesome. popular animated films of all time are CG yeah. animated movies. Yeah, This is a weird time in Disney's history, though. And they were taking risks with live action stuff, which is something they do periodically. 
and we will talk about some of that as part as part of this whole Tron story here. Uh, but they brought in a group called Wang Films uh, to to do the animation uh, because they found because they found Disney's animation department so chilly. Uh, and so Tron was the first one of the first films. It was not the first, but it was one of the first films to use computer animation. Uh, which is a huge milestone today. Uh, but the mm. important thing to know about this is the way the computers they had back then had about two megabytes of memory and about 330 megabytes of storage, which is just astronomically small by today's standards. Yeah, by today's standards, I mean, I have songs bigger than that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this podcast is bigger than the storage of of the entirety of of the the RAM in these computers. That makes me yeah. feel so inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> so, but so with this movie, they couldn't. There is CG in this film, but unlike what we would see in later on, that was actual CG animation. These computers could only do one image at a time, basically you know if anybody's gonna know what hand animation is like and what frame by frame animation is like it's disney they had to do frame by frame animation for every one of these cg shots which is it sounds painstaking like just, like uh, we i i basically did the cliff notes of some of the animation i i would have loved to take almost the entire podcast to like explain all the insane stuff that that they did to make this movie because it's really, really incredible. And that's not even getting into the backlit animation that they did for the actual characters in the in the mm-hmm. film, which which we'll yeah. get into when we talk about it because there is some that is some painstaking work right there. But but every one of these of these sequences, for example, the solar sailor that that's flying through the canyons, each frame of that could take six hours to produce. It's just, man, can you believe it? Like, I mean, I know, I know, obviously, you know, time passes and and technology gets better, but like being one of the first to do this stuff, like just, I get being dedicated, but man, six hours to produce a frame. A frame, one twenty-fourth of a second of the film would take six (laughs) hours to render out. That's, that's crazy to me. Not to mention the final piece of this. So when you make animation, you have these clear sheets that you paint on and then you film. Well, you mm-hmm. couldn't do that with a with the computer generated image. So <laughs> they just filmed a computer screen. <laughs> it's literally I, I, the thing I did at like eight years old to get, you know, Nintendo scores where you would take a picture of your TV screen. Like that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's what they were doing. I remember doing that. I forgot all about doing that. That's great. <laughs> oh, I was so stupid. Um, but yeah, so I mean, this was a, a a really big artistic achievement, and it was released in on July 9th, nineteen eighty two. Uh, Disney had moved the date that was supposed to be Christmas, but they learned that Don Bluth's The Secrets of Nim was set for a J- July release, and for whatever reason, they're like, "Oh, well, we we gotta we gotta stick it to Bluth." Uh, but the, the film came out to glowing critical reviews. Both Siskel and, uh, Siskel and Ebert gave the film four stars, with Ebert calling it uh, a dazzling movie from Disney in which computers have been used to make themselves romantic and glamorous. Here's a techno- technological sound and light show that's, that's as sensational and brainy, stylish, and fun. 
But despite the $50 million gross and merchandise sales, Disney saw the film as a financial disappointment and actually wrote off some of its $17 million budget uh, as a tax loss. Uh, And that's where we get into the idea that this movie was a cult classic because growing up, I'm a little bit younger than Travis. um, I always thought this movie, like I grew up, you know, if this movie came on the Disney channel and I grew up believing that this movie was just another Disney classic. And that's kind of how people sort of treat it. Kind of. Yeah. Because I would say by the time I was getting to see it would have been, you know, 87, 88, 89. And by then it had gotten its cult following to the point where, um, I, I was kind of the same thing growing up. I just thought this was a big hit and looking at the numbers, even it, it was, I mean, $50 $50 million in 1982 on a, it had a high ish budget at the time, yes. but still that's a decent return on investment plus merchandise sales, which there was again that I mentioned that the game that I had, which was Tron deadly discs. There was also uh, the Tron arcade game discs of Tron. Um, after that, they put even more games out. There was adventures of Tron um, solar solar sailor. So there was a bunch of games around that time too. I I agree with you. I always remembered this as being a bigger thing than it was. Well, um, it, it, this is where this is where looking at it as someone and I, this is the first time I've ever seen Tron uh, for for this for this episode. Yeah, so that's why I want to spend some time to watch to talk about Tron because we haven't been doing that a lot this month. But because you've never seen Tron, I am mm-hmm. really really excited to get into this with you because I finding that out. Because I, th- I think you let that slip, like, maybe at the end of our conversation last week. But finding out that you had never seen it, I was like, oh, man, Drew is in for which, a treat. Which is funny, because I have seen Tron Legacy. But, uh, so, 1982. Let's go over some of the films that came out in the summer of 1982. Um, E.T. came out in 1982. Secret of Nim came out in 1982. Blade Runner, which wouldn't have directly competed with this, but is kind of in the, it's, it's also another classic sci-fi movie that did not do especially well at the box office, but, but there's this is true, but there are, I mean, ET, I mean, when you have this movie going up against ET, like imagine, yeah. imagine a world where ET doesn't exist. And Tron is giving a little more room to breathe. That's where this is something that I think is a, a telltale thing for the Tron franchise. As we move forward, Disney has, expectations and i don't know why i'm doing a hand gesture because this is an audio podcast uh but my hand is very high in the sky and (laughs) and and the the actual results are successful it more than doubled its budget even though its budget was inflated because of last minute changes and all of that but it wasn't as successful as they wanted it to be and so it just got put on the shelf yeah Yeah, and and i think releasing it in july didn't help it any because you mentioned ET and I'd forgotten ET was 1982 and that movie just sucked the oxygen out of everything. Like that was the biggest movie by far. Secret of Nim was a big animated film. The only thing I can think of was uh, in hindsight, Disney wanting to stick it to Don Bluth because he was a former Disney animator left the company was, this was his, I think Secret of Nim was his first film after leaving Disney. So they may have been worried about, they may have been worried that, you know, oh, this other animated film from somebody who used to work with us. I don't know. I, I wouldn't put it past a company to do that. But I think you leave this movie till later in the year and it has it just has more eyes to, to hit it. It might have been more financially successful than it already was. 
for sure. I mean, if they had pushed it to September, you could have gotten yeah. the Tron Halloween costumes, which I'm sure already existed. But uh, so I do want to talk a little bit about Tron as as a first time watcher of this 1982 classic. Yeah. Yeah, we don't even have to go to too much of the like the plot by plot stuff. Just give me give me your reactions. Like I'm really curious because I feel like this is up your alley. It is. It very much is. I want to talk a a, a few. To, a few uh, I want to talk about a few things. One, I mean, the computer stuff is so wrong, but it's also so right in a nice way. Like it's not how anything actually works, but I also like yeah. it. I like the way that it worked. And and what I like especially about this is that you have these computer programmers. You have Jeff Bridges as as Flynn. You have Bruce Boxleitner, Captain Sheridan, as Alan. And you have David Warner as Ed Dillinger, the, the evil executive of Incom, the company that all these people work for. And they have written various programs that exist in this grid world inside the computer that 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 Flynn ends up being drawn into. But what I like about that is that so you've got the com- the computer programmer and the program that they create which is a reflection of the programmer. So mm-hmm. so Flynn has a character clue that we see in the very beginning which <laughs> there's a big uh thing that I didn't notice from Tron Legacy, but we'll get into that later. But you've got Bruce Boxleitner playing Alan, and you've also got Bruce Boxleitner playing Tron. And mm-hmm. Alan wrote Tron. And I I, yep. I really like that. I think that's such a, an interesting concept that they poured their heart and soul into making these programs, and those programs are a, re- are a reflection of them. And, and I, well, I dig that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the things I like about Tron is you're right in that realistic, real world wise, it's not how computers work, right? But in this world, they created a world and a universe where these are the rules and they stick to their rules and their rules are consistent. And I like that. Yeah, I love seeing, and by the way, Bruce Boxleitner will always be Tron for me. Anytime I see him in anything. He he popped up in Supergirl. It's like, what is Tron doing as the president? Like, you know, it's just, I can't help But, um... Yeah, it's just one of those things. Like, I appreciate the way that they uh, they did that. Where you know, it is. It's the the programs are reflections of them. So it's a great way to use your cast and create these two different worlds and then meld them together. And it gives you a, an anchor point, right? Because you see Tron, and you immediately, if you're paying attention enough, you know that that's Tron with before he even says a word because they've established that Alan uh, created him. So, yeah, I like and, and and also David Warner, who plays the bad guy, it's senior executive vice president of Incom, who's who's letting his master control program hack into the Pentagon and steal secrets yeah. and da 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 da. He will always be he, Professor Perry of TGRI for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, a bunch of characters. No, but anytime, anytime I see him, I'm like Secret of the Use. That's every yep. time I see him. I just D- say secretly. David Warner plays tremendous bad guys. Uh, he's, he really does. Uh, uh, Chain of Command, the uh, the Cardassian who captures Picard in in that two parter. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. How many different Star Trek characters does that dude play? Like he's been a Klingon, a Cardassian, and a human at least that I can what? remember off the top of my head because so, he was a human and he and Jeffrey uh, Coleman might have a, a run for it. He was in Star Ooh. Trek Five. 
Uh, yep. And uh, he was in six. Uh, was he in six? Yeah. Who was he in six? He was a clean. He was in six. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. He was, uh, was it Gorkin? Oh, yes. He was the chancellor. He's Chancellor Gorkin. Yeah, Chancellor Gorkin. Oh, man. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, David Warner's fantastic. <laughs> and they actually have, they tap David Warner to play both, all three bad guys in this movie. And this is another yeah. thing that I absolutely love. So, so David Warner is Ed Dillinger, the, the evil executive who has created the master control program. That is the thing that's taking over income systems. This is also another one of those things where this is definitely in the days when you had a mainframe and terminals and not individual, mm-hmm. uh, individual computers. Uh, but he also plays Sark, who is the command program that is kind of the, the MCP's, like lieutenant guy uh and 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 the implication being that he wrote both of these programs so of course he's going to voice both of these programs and i yeah i love it absolutely also 80s david warner gives me very good like early 90s alan rickman vibes i can see that yeah i can see a little bit of that it's that it's it's the way they carried themselves Mm -hmm. right and he's like it's refined but also evil and we talked about how long it took to to get this movie's look and everything. And I got to say, it's 100% worth it. This movie oozes style. I, and I will say this, both the first and second film, Tron, to me, has some of the best aesthetic in science fiction film. So I, I had to do some looking in because I uh, the the... Every every time you look at the way that the outside of the CG effects that they call it backlit animation, backlit animation, backlit mm-hmm. animation, and it I struggle to find a definition for what backlit animation is because it seems to have only been used on this movie. But pretty uh, much, it was kind of something that they sort of developed for this, and it was a way to create that that otherworldly look that they wanted to get without because. For, for as much as this movie is computer generated and that was always talked about, there's only 15 minutes worth of stuff, if that, uh, that's computer generated in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So much of the look was from this backlit animation thing where they washed all the color out so everybody's very pale and then they were able to um, brighten up and add those colors later. So you have your, your blues and your reds and there's a little bit of yellow in there too. Yeah, so, so the, apparently the way this worked is that they filmed the entire movie in black and white against black backgrounds Mm -hmm. then they would uh take it frame by frame and they would just i don't know whether they inverted it but so so the the tron look if you've ever seen tron they're known for having these bright bands of color on across all of their their costumes and they basically just blacked everything out and they hand drew in hand animated all of the 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 colors on everything kind of like kind of like you know in star wars back in the the in in the the original trilogy star wars movies they would have to add in the digital lightsaber effect on every single lightsaber shot imagine that but on every piece of costuming in the entire movie right and a solid what 70 percent of this movie is in this world where all these characters exist so I can't imagine. I mean, we talked about the six hours to to render one frame of digital animation. I can't imagine the number of man hours that went into animating all that because that's a ton. And if I remember right, I saw I I now I could be Mandela affecting myself here, but I remember seeing some kind of a behind the scenes thing where the colors were originally different, 
the red and blue weren't what they were and they changed them at, at one point? They, I've heard that too. They were. Uh, in, in fact, the original colors were supposed to be orange for the good guys and blue for the bad guys. It's why even in the light cycle sequence, all of yes. Sark's light cycles are blue and all of, of, of yeah, I, and Flynn's light cycles are orange, despite the fact that, that every, every other time, all the bad guys are red. <laughs> yeah, okay. I also right, remember I mean, hearing, and I, I could also be Mandela affecting myself, because I, I distinctly remember reading an interview at some point in time where they said the reason that they went with some of the effects they did with uh, the, the backlit animation was because of the, the way that people looked in the suits looked too goofy. And if they didn't do some sort of animation, it, it wasn't going to work. I, I don't know if that's true, but that, I remember reading that. I, can, I couldn't find. I can 100% believe that just because look, I mean, those suits were. They're, they're frumpy. Face it, they're a little frumpy. They're a little goofy. We have all seen the early 2000s Tron guy in the costume yep. meme. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, those are those are not flattering costumes in any way. So give something to contrast those and, and set them off. And it works. Mm-hmm. Once they do that, it's great. The Like the visuals of this movie, even to, by today's standards, it's still striking to watch. It is. A movie that's almost 40 years old. And just it because, and I think part of it is because no other movies really use that, that uh, technique, that backlit animation technique. For sure. So mm-hmm. it's, it looks even, different. Even the sequel doesn't use it, which right. I can understand that. Uh, but uh, but again, there's there's part of the style of this movie that also works. And surprise, surprise, guess who did a lot of the the designs for this the 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 ships in this in this movie? Legendary designer Sid Mead, yeah. rest in yeah. peace, Sid Mead. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I the that guy just knows how to make a funky looking non what's the un, unbalanced not unbalanced it's it's just not, asymmetrical. asymmetrical thank you asymmetrical <laughs> ship he knows how to do that and that's and sark's carrier thing looks rad the yeah. the rest of the stuff even as low polygon as it is still looks cool it looks like i mean you have the uh the 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 weird uh, Galaga-looking things. What are they called? The, oh, the the, the uh, recognizers. The recognizers, which again, what a name, recognizers. <laughs> yeah. They they look like a three D interpretation of the kind of bad guy you would see in uh, in Galaga space popping invaders. down yeah. or Space yep. Invaders popping down, and that's and that's the kind of cool stuff that that knowing that it was meant to be kind of a video game homage, unlike what we would have expected to make, oh, let's make a Pac-Man movie. Let's make a, a Space Invaders movie. No, we're going to make, yeah, we're going to make a movie about video games, but we're not going to make a video game movie. And that's a very distinct difference that I think works in its favor uh, as far do- as stories, story is concerned. Uh, I I love I love Jeff Bridges in this movie. I love him. Oh. I, I love how seriously he's not taking everything at first. Like mm-hmm. he's almost like a prototype. I mean, or a, a post Han Solo, pre Malcolm Reynolds. Like he's definitely got that kind of thing going on. But it also means the movie has a Tron problem because you have 
Jeff Bridges as this kind of chosen one Luke Skywalker character, but then you also have Tron as this chosen one Luke Skywalker character. And the narrative sometimes can't really figure out which character it wants to be the focus of the movie. This is really the only complaint I have about the story of this movie. Yeah. So you have you have six characters that we need to really talk about. You have Kevin Flynn, Alan Bradley, and Dr. Laura Baines. The the sort of th- the trio of good guy humans. Mm-hmm. Laura and Flynn used to date. They broke up. Laura now dates Alan. There's some weird tension there. In the computer world, in the grid, there is Kevin Flynn as himself as a user inside the system, which is a whole other thing that I find very cool. Then you have Tron, who is looks just like Alan. And you have uh, Yori, who is the program that that Laura has created to work with on the laser system, who is also a character in there. And there seems to be some sort of relationship between Laura and and Tron, or excuse me, Yori Mm -hmm. and Tron, much like there is between Laura and Alan. But at the end of the movie, Flynn still has to kiss the girl. Yeah, I it's it's a little messy. Um, uh, they did think that Tron was dead at the time, but then he's not dead, and they have to make this whole thing. Well, we thought you were dead. It's weird. Yeah. Oops. I mean, the admittedly, the ending of Tron is pretty messy in general, and it just sort yeah. of stops. It doesn't really end. It just sort of stops. They even like come out. He comes out of the computer world, and there's not a whole lot else that happens. It's like cut to him getting off of the helicopter. And comes over to everything's him. fine. <laughs> everything's everything's great now. Like so, what happened? Honestly, with Dylan? I, I do. I do have another. Again, it was just something that I was thinking about while watching this movie. Again, I I really do not care. But so Tron gives this computer bit to Alan. So are we to understand? And I know I think that they actually describe it in Tron Legacy that they've not noticed that Flynn's missing. So, because in during, they say like hours can pass by in here, and it only have been a couple of seconds in the real world. They said in Tron Legacy, I think purely to clear up this issue because Tron gets that disc with the data from Alan mm-hmm. to throw into into Master Mold, Master Control, and no one seems to be that concerned that Flynn's not around. So I'm, I'm assuming that because time is passing differently, they yeah. assume that Flynn's still at his station. Well, yeah, so I, think, only, I only I can think, say that because of what they say in Tron Legacy. But even then, well, I, I, I kind of picked up on that, the idea that, okay, all of this is happening at the same time. And they do talk about like, they don't talk about microseconds, but they talk about some sort of micro processing. Micro, micro cycles. And they do mention, I think nanoseconds at one point. And if you if you're watching like if you if you're paying attention to the beginning of the movie as he's getting hit by the laser the printer is starting and when he comes back out the printer is ending so it's he's basically in there the the length of the movie is the time it took for that that dot matrix printer to okay. print out what you I, I am perfectly fine with that it was just something that kind of occurred to me while I was watching the movie it, it's something that I just kind of it's what probably happened is I inferred that from two decades, three decades of this movie's influence on other yeah. stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that that didn't bother me. So uh, one other thing I want to point out is that I just really liked seeing Peter Jurassic as a as a random character in this movie. Uh, Peter Jurassic plays Crom, the accounting software. <laughs> the, yeah. The, uh, that uh, that is in this movie. Uh, he also played Ambassador Londo Molari in Babylon Five alongside Bruce Boxleitner as uh, Captain Sheridan. Just thought that was oh, a fun little B five connection. <laughs> anyway yeah i mean overall like it's just it's such a good visual movie that i can i don't know i i i am able to kind of um give it a lot more leeway on some of the the plot hole scripting issues that i have when i watch it now i can watch it more critically and be like yeah okay so this is a little sloppy at the end this is a little sloppy in here but it just they did so much in making this movie and they they established a really cool world. And you so have, I kind of give them that leeway. And you have to give them credit because, you know, you, like I'm, I'm old enough that I can put myself in the context of when this movie was made and that they're mm-hmm. not going to get all the computer stuff right. But it's a fun movie. Jeff, That's a blast. Brid- Jeff Bridges is charming. Uh, 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 Trump. Jeff Bridges acts like I would probably act if I got sucked into the computer. He's just like, this is kind of cool. And oh, yeah, well, this seriously, when- yeah, Flynn at this point is such a cool character because you know when you meet him, he's playing his game in his the arcade that he owns, and he's just like this rock star in his arcade. It's listening, his arcade to a, has, listening to a Journey song. Yeah, he's listening to Journey. I mean, it's this movie is so eighties. You know, it, it's dripping with Aquanet. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's incredible. He's got a, a twelve foot tall neon sign with his name on it. He's like just the center of attention in this place. They go up into his office and he's like ripping his shirt off to put on a different shirt because he's sweating from playing the game. Like, and he's just everything is cool. He's all, he's like a, a holdover hippie almost. Mm-hmm. So I have a question about this scene. I don't know, Travis, if you've if you've gotten down to this. So there is a moment where 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 uh, Lori has gone into the arcade. Laura, excuse me. I'm getting Laura and Yori crossed in my yeah. head. Uh, so Laura is is going into the arcade to find him. And there is this background voice that is talking about Flynn. Go, are you going to go for the high score? Are you going to go for the, the world record? Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. And that voice sounds like a cartoon voice actor from the 1980s. And oh. I could not identify who it was. Well, I know what you mean. Um, I, I and I tried to find it in, on IMDb, and I could not could not find it on IMDb. Hmm. And it's only possibly because I mean I have to just watch the credits because IMDb sometimes is not very careful yeah. on there. Um, I didn't I realize I Michael Dudikoff was in this movie. American Ninja himself, Michael Dudikoff, has a small oh, role wow. in this movie. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. Um, I, yeah, I mean, again, I just, Jeff Bridges is playing the kind of character that I want to, I always like, it's not just that he's cool, but I do like people that are, that do have senses of humor. And I think that's what has translated so well with the Marvel movies and stuff is I always like a character that isn't always going to look at everything completely seriously. It's, it's refreshing sometimes to have heroes that don't do that. Like for every, you know, for every cloud strife, give me give me a Titus. You know, like I mean, you don't have to like either character, but just like it's nice to have some variation. And I've always 
loved that kind of hero. It's 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 growing up because I loved Han Solo back then and and Captain Malcolm Reynolds in, in, when I was a teenager. Like it's or I guess twenty. Uh, it, you just it's it's the kind of character I love, and it it, it endears this movie even more to me because. Jeff Bridges is so cool, man. <laughs> well, he feels like he feels like a real person, right? Yeah. I mean, he's he's upset that he got pushed out of his programming job and he lost all this money and he's trying to find a way to get his money and get his recognition and all that. And that's, but that's, by the, the way, another thing I oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm just he just doesn't he at the same time, like he's just sort of a big kid. So he's <laughs> gonna have a good time. So he gets he ends up inside the computer and his first thing is just like, it's almost like he's just like, dude, this is far out. Like this is really cool because he thinks he's dreaming. He doesn't really believe it at first. And this is one thing that I love about Jeff Bridges character, Kevin Flynn in this movie. His goal is to find the document that proves that he created the video games that have made money so that he can get that money. And also the character that he creates at the beginning of the movie isn't super successful. He's not as good of a programmer as Alan is. He might be more charming, he might be more handsome, but he's not as as talented at making Tron as he is at at making his own character. It, 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 that's just a, a, a little a little interesting bit that that well i, I don't know whether it's, that, it's, how intentional that was but but i really well the, the weird thing about that is you know he's a different kind of programmer he may not be like we're told that he's a really good programmer but alan is making something specific for that system whereas he's trying to do something a little bit more invasive and yeah. I, especially at a time without internet you know that the the whatever he was using to digitally hack uh is is never never specified, but that is well, even, not a really even, good video game framework. Even Clue in the movie is he talks a little more like this. He's a little more robotic. Yeah, he was, and and you almost you almost can view that as like he was a Clue was a slap together program for this purpose. So yeah. you know he's just not fully formed like Tron is. Tron is integrated into the system and. And all right, that, that's, so. that's why Jeff Bridges wants to get there, so he can go directly into the system. But mm. I mean, at the same time, he has, you know, and that's the, the one thing he's trying to get is the information that he he did in fact create all these games that have been super super successful, yeah. and made the company a lot of money. Um, and you could also look at this as, you know, it's it's kind of a harbinger of what happens with Tron. Yeah. So, <laughs> as so, a franchise. We have, so we have, we have Kevin Flynn who's made the company a lot of money and doesn't have anything to show for it. And we have Tron that's made the company a lot of money and doesn't have anything to show for it. So 1982 comes and goes. Tron is in the box office, makes, makes a, a decent bit. Yeah. Has good reviews, decent reviews. And then, Nothing. No, and I, I would imagine because I remember buying all of the the trades back in the day, like Cinema Fantastique and all these magazines that were basically rumor mongering, but would give you the development hell situations of all sorts of movies, mostly like the sequels and uh, properties that that people were interested in. They were talking about X Men movies in nineteen ninety five, that kind of stuff. And those were always around, but rumors of a Tron sequel really began to pick up steam around 1999 when reports began circling that Pixar would possibly work on a new Tron movie 
though they couldn't ever seem to agree whether it was a remake or a sequel, after the release of Toy Story 2. Uh, John Lasseter had long publicly attributed his inspiration for Toy Story as Tron. So it's not really difficult to see Disney giving that to Pixar and saying, hey, you just made this smash hit. Let's go for it. Yeah, Lasseter has been on record saying that without Tron, there would be no Toy Story. And and we talked about how important that, that Tron was for, for CG animation. Absolutely true when it comes to <laughs> what Pixar became. Oh, I mean, and and honestly, what Disney became at a certain point. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, without without that, you you, don't, you also don't have Wreck It Ralph without this movie. Um, right. There's a, I mean, there's some, there's some storytelling devices that I really didn't pick up the first time I watched it growing up that I see now that has been used in several, uh, not just kids but adult animation and science fiction stories. I mean, I I can definitely see it. Well, oh, absolutely. We then flash forward a few years to 2004 when a game called Tron 2.0 came out. And this is a a first-person shooter game, and you can tell that because it's got a Tron-looking guy on the cover who's got a who's got a disc and also like a Tron rifle because it's a first-person shooter. Yep. Yeah. Uh and, I remember this. I, I I remembered it in doing research for this. I had definitely forgotten about it. Uh, but this is 2004 when this game came out, and uh, Linsberger uh, was also involved in the production of this game, and and basically said that that the the sales of this game would kind of influence you know what would happen with a Tron sequel and 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 all of that. Unfortunately, that game didn't do super well. The PC version had. Decent reviews, uh, but the console versions did not do so well. And well, which is funny for me because I didn't mean to interrupt you, Drew, but I I distinctly remember like Tron 2.0 ads on like every comic book I was buying and several uh, game magazines and, and movie magazines. And most of the reviews had been glowing. And so until doing research for this episode, I thought this game had done very, very well. Like, I always assumed this game had done very well. And I couldn't find the actual figures, just that everyone's saying the game undersold. Yeah, it did. Because I remember it coming out. I remember seeing all the the ads. I, re- I actually remember the chatter about, oh, if this, mo- if this game does well, they're going to work that into a Tron sequel. And this is going to sort of prime the pump for the the sequel to Tron. I remember that. I remember playing the game and enjoying it, but it didn't, it never caught on. I I could tell you like three people that I know of that have ever played it besides me. Yeah. uh, Well, because it was, it was PC for the time with a later Xbox version. I think it was a killer app. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think at the time, I think this is before, and there've always been PC gamers. I'm not saying that, but I think a large percentage of the mainstream gaming community were focused more on console gaming. Um, yeah. And I know PC I'm saying this at a time. Wait, World of Warcraft, I know, had just come out, so that was a big thing. But f- from what I remember, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Travis, but wasn't Tron 2.0 kind of demanding on the system? It was a little bit. It was a. It was not a, a, a low-end game by any stretch. They really tried to push things, and you know, at the time, PC gaming was more niche than than it is even today. Like people, just like today, people that PC were PC gamers were hardcore PC gamers. But your majority, 
majority of your casual gamers and your people that just wanted to pick up a game and play were playing it on consoles. This game didn't come out for a year uh, before un- until it hit, and it only hit Xbox. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it just didn't have, it, it wasn't going to get the big groundswell um, that you would see. However, there is another game that came out around the same time, 2005 to be exact, that did have a huge groundswell. And that was Kingdom Hearts 2. So Kingdom Hearts is a is a game that that uh, for for folks who don't know video games uh, is it, it, it's a combination of a of a Japanese game developer called Square now known as Square Enix and Disney, uh, where you had kind of a combination of these things. So Square made made games like Final Fantasy uh, and and things like that, and you have this character uh, created for the Kingdom Hearts games named Sora who would go to these different disney worlds and in the first game the first kingdom hearts game several years earlier there was uh, a beauty and the beast land that they would go in and a uh uh what are some of the other before christmas well well so i was gonna gonna save the night before christmas basically you had this character aladdin that would go into aladdin and they'd meet aladdin and they'd team up with him mm-hmm. and go on an adventure alice in wonderland they'd team up with with her and go on an adventure but one of the things about that game is they also had a, a land based on nightmare before christmas but what what was interesting about that particular world in the first kingdom hearts game is that normally the characters would go in and they would just look like themselves in Agrabah or in the the Hundred Acre Wood in Winnie the Pooh land. But in the Nightmare Before Christmas land, they looked all claymation skull had, goth Halloween. Yeah, they had horror they had Halloween costumes on. It was really I, I love uh, I think they call it, call it Nightmare Sora. Yeah. Um he's got like a little pumpkin attached to a bat wing on his head and but the, I, I, love, I love that look. When Kingdom Hearts 2 cam- comes around they announced a whole bunch of different worlds. And one of those worlds was a land called Space Paranoids, a.k.a. Tron World, where you have Sora and Donald Duck and Goofy going into the world of Tron and helping Tron, voiced by Bruce Boxleitner, beat the MCP and Sark. And they had their cool Tron gear on, and it has a whole big cool thing that that to me as someone who really honestly that was my first real exposure to anything Tron related, kind of got excited about Tron and what that meant, and it, it and seeing other people who were more familiar with that movie being excited about it. Well, yeah, I mean, because not only did they have Tron costumes, but they had the backlit like faces. And mm-hmm. like Sasora was in black and white, as was Donald and Goofy. And I mean, they just they really nailed all the aesthetic. And as a big fan, if I remember correctly, right after this is where you have Squall and Cloud fighting back to back against a thousand heartless. And that was the coolest thing in the world. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, yeah, this was a very, very cool part of the game. And uh, to add on to that, most levels in Kingdom Hearts 2 had a specialized keyblade. And the Tron keyblade looked really cool too. And I mean, yeah, Drew is is definitely uh, hitting the nail on the head in terms of like influence because Kingdom Hearts, unlike Tron 2.0, was massively successful. Yes. And I don't know that Tron's presence in Kingdom Hearts 2 meant anything for getting a sequel. 
But based on the timing of everything, it definitely feels like it did. I can't, I, don't, yeah, I couldn't oh, find sure. anything to prove that, but it feels like it. I mean, it sometimes it helps. Yeah. Or they um, were, th- or they were thinking about making a sequel, and they decided to throw Tron into Kingdom Hearts two to see what people thought about it, and people were excited. So, like, oh, okay, yes, we'll make a sequel. Uh, and I feel like a lot of reviews used that photo when they were posting on magazines. It was a big deal because it was one of those yeah. worlds that that changed up the costumes for the characters. <laughs> Ding. Uh, it, <laughs> anyway, uh, so you hit the nail on the head, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> so. So production started on a new film. Uh, so they, they brought in producer Sean Bailey, who was now the president of production at Walt Disney Motion Picture Production, uh, who appro- approached the screenwriting duo of Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis, who were both avowed Tron fans, to write a follow-up script. Yeah, and they they also hooked up with first-time director uh, Joseph Kowinski. Who I'm, I, I mean, I didn't do as much deep, deep research as I did for the first Tron. So I'm not sure how this happened. Like, I saw, you know, what happened in terms of the meetings because he was brought into the mix and created kind of a conceptual prototype for Bailey to show what his version of a modern Tron universe would look like. And apparently that was enough to kind of get him the gig, but this was his first time, it looked like, directing anything. So I don't know whose nephew he was or what ha- what happened but somehow he got put in charge of of doing Tron. and at this point uh Linsberger was involved creatively uh both uh screenwriters worked with him and he uh, kind of as a consultant and he was very excited with what they were doing because the stuff that he wanted to do with a few like a, a future tron story but a modern tron story was in line with what those uh, two guys were doing. But he ended up walking away, not because of creative differences, but he just kind of felt like he, he's, got, he's gotten, I mean, it's almost 30 years later at this point. He's a lot older, and he, just, he said he couldn't keep up with the work hours, and he really wanted to kind of pass the baton to the next generation and see what they had to say about Tron, if there was something to say. He felt like he didn't want to compete with himself, is what he said. So it took two years and 10 companies to create the 1,565 visual effects shot in Tron Legacy, including uh, what, what most people seem to glom onto in negative reactions, the CGI version of Jeff Bridges for the new iteration of Clue. And also the flashbacks of old Jeff Bridges. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, yeah. they do that right at the beginning, too. You yeah. know, honestly... Yes, it is a little bit dated looking now to see that. And I kind of almost wish this movie had been made, say, even five years later, because Mm -hmm. we've seen what that technology has become to de-age these actors. Right. But I can tell you, seeing it in 2010, I was impressed at the time. I, I, yeah. Watching it in 2020, I was honestly more, I thought the work they did on de-aging Bruce Boxleitner worked better than the aging uh, uh, bridges that might be because box lightners only on screen de-aged for two shots and it was also a little blurry i don't know oh yeah uh, so so the big thing for for disney right now is they started pumping so much energy and money into conventions 
There was mm. viral marketing. There were tie-in games. There were Marvel covers of of Tron style Marvel. I remember issues. those covers. They were they were cool. The Spider Man one was awesome. Yeah, I, I do vaguely remember those. I mean, they they set up a Flynn's Arcade at Comic Con in two thousand nine, mm-hmm. like, and they debuted Space Paranoids there. They actually made a Space Paranoids game and put it out. So I I am a longtime Dragon Con attendee, um, and at the time uh, I. My, me and some friends, we were doing something called the Dragon Con Photo Hunt. It existed for a few years. We passed it on to some other folks when we just got too busy to do it. Where basically you would, we we got a bunch of people to to donate prizes. Uh, organizations, Think Geek was involved. Rest in peace, Think Geek. Uh, and and basically one of the things around this time was we just expected so many people to dress up in the Tron Legacy lit up led strip costumes uh, mm-hmm. because there was such a push for stuff like that on on different comic-con and other convention floors and it never really happened it happened a couple of times but not really to the level that i ever expected which is which is weird uh so the, and the surprise it was surprising. I mean, the movie came out in 2010, which is so weird to think that it was 10 years ago as the, at the time that we're recording this, that this movie came out. Again, this is part of why we're doing this as Franchise Follies, because what happened here? It had a 51% on Rotten Tomatoes. Many critics, though, praised the aesthetic prowess, like the, the, the design of the film. Roger Ebert gave it three stars out of four uh, which is pretty good for him, I would think. Oh, that's excellent. That's a. I mean, it's a pretty solid movie. Yeah, but mm-hmm. but they but they they didn't find the story as compelling. I don't know whether that's because of the quality of the story in 2010 versus the quality of the story. Like if you had made this exact same movie in 1994 or 84, yeah. if that w- mm-hmm. if there would be something different, I don't know. I can't speak to that, but. On a budget of $170 million, this movie made $400 million. So yeah, it was definitely, it was a successful movie. It was a successful movie. And and we have to talk about some of the reasons why. Visually, this movie is absolutely stunning and amazing. I I adore the look of this movie. I I mean, like I, I, what I say about the first Tron movie, where it, I think Tron, as a franchise, has some of the best aesthetic in science fiction I think they definitely improved upon the Tron look here. And I, there's so much about this movie I really love. I love – some people were kind of a little put off that it didn't look the same. But I love that everything ages with the technology. So, yes, in the first movie, everything's blocky and awkward and weird. But that's that was the games of the time. Now everything's hyper-realistic and colorful and dark and grimy. And that's the games of the time. I, you know? I, I would say the one thing that I would have liked to have seen more is that in, in the first Tron, all the people inside the grid had kind of a washed out look to them, which they accomplished in the first movie because of the backlit filming it in black and white and adding color later and all of that. It was clearly just makeup on everybody in Tron Legacy. That's about the the only negative I have because I think the costuming is fantastic in Tron Legacy. I think the mm. overall design of the world is really cool and seeing all the updated uh, 
recognizers and tanks yeah. and light cycles and yeah. all of that stuff is super cool. And let's talk about the Daft Punk score of this movie. All right. So hands down top five movie scores for me of all time. Like just phenomenal. And I remember hearing that Daft Punk was going to do the score for this. And I thought they're perfect to put in a Tron movie. I can't wait to hear what they did. So I went into it as a, I'd been a Daft Punk fan, let's see 2010. So I'd been listening to them since probably the homework album. So 90, I probably heard that in like 96. So you got to figure it's almost 15 years of liking Daft Punk then hearing they're going to do this as a a sequel to a movie that I loved growing up. So like I already have super high expectations. They went so far above the expectations I had for them as a film score and a Daft Punk album at the same time, just phenomenal. And they, and they definitely, you can tell that Disney knew what they had because they released multiple soundtracks to this movie remix mm-hmm. remix tracks and all sorts of things and and i do also That's love daft punk's cameo in the movie <laughs> yes yeah, the, the, the the cameo is amazing but they released daft punk 10 inch vinyl identity discs uh like i think i think it's the entire soundtrack put across four uh lps that were sold separately each one a different color identity disc and i mean the the, the those are not as hard to get now they're still expensive but the actual like full like uh, first edition of that soundtrack on vinyl is like four hundred dollars <laughs> it's it's very rare that's crazy you know it visually so would you pay it, huh would you pay it mm, i might if i had uh if i had a vinyl player i probably would i it's that good of a soundtrack like it, it, it would be worth it soundtrack. um you know, aesthetically and visually, this movie just blew my mind at the time, too. Like, it, nothing had looked like it. It took the visuals of that first movie and that kind of awe you had in watching that and something that you had never really seen before, and it updated it for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. did that perfectly. The costuming was great. The way they integrated the light uh, strips and everything into stuff and how not everyone is wearing the same things. You get little differences, like... Cora, who's played by Olivia Wilde, has like this little um, kind of a skirt as part of her costume. So it's a, she looks just a little bit different. And you had like weird helmet face covering things that some of the characters are wearing. And you got Flynn with his jacket and his like hooded stuff. And he's kind of looking like a monk at this point. He's it turned was, into the dude because he's oh, like, yeah. it's like jazz, man. And I'm like, all right, man, calm down. See, one, <laughs> we already know that you haven't seen. Uh, well, no, but you know, I know, I know <laughs> the dude is culturally. But but yeah. what's funny about that is that I heard that that criticism of of Jeff Bridges' performance in this film. Oh, he's fine. But in watching the two back to back. I can absolutely sense. see how the Kevin mm-hmm. Flynn of the first movie could be the Kevin Flynn and Tron legacy given an extended period of time. And, and well, I appreciate it more. The, the yeah. Time. Because they, they set up the fact that he got out of the computer, but figured out how he could basically figured out how he could go in and out at will. And so he starts doing it more and more and more. And then you learn over time, sort of what he's trying to do inside of there. And then he gets trapped. So now he's stuck there. And you got to figure if time passes the way it does in the computer world versus the real world, and he's been in there for 20 some odd years, almost 30 years, like he would be 
that's that's how I pictured Flynn kind of aging. Is he's still sort of this like now he's now instead of being the young kind of like far out man type of hippie, like he's he's gone from Cheech and Chong to like old man hippie, where yeah. it's just like everything's cool. You know, he's just real laid back now. He's like he's he's super zen. He even and mentioned I, you know you're messing with my zen thing, kid. Like, yeah, and he, uh, Flynn would have to do that to survive in this world. And so I, I, that, I honestly, that never bothered me. I feel like the overall story is pretty solid. My my main complaint is I feel like they put a trilogy's worth of plot into one movie. Because again, Tron Legacy has a Tron problem. We have a Tron subplot that we get so little of, of yeah. the potential, uh, what we thought was death, but it's the assimilation of Tron. Then we find out Tron's alive, and then Tron at point one point has a crisis. Uh, crisis of conscience and kind of fights against his programming. All of this is done in thir- like 15 second scenes. Yeah. And, and, and well, and, that, and this is, it's clear that they were setting this up for a sequel because yes. multiple oh, things true. happen in this movie. Uh, so we have one, we've talked about Tron. Tron has been reprogrammed by evil clue uh, to be Rinsler. And then, suddenly realizes what's going on and he gets thrown off into the, into the, the, the sea of sea of simulation. Is that what it was called? Uh, I can't remember. Something like that. Something like that. that. And as, as he's sinking down, his evil yellow coloration turns to the good guy, blue coloration, white coloration. And that's all we see of Tron in this movie. Similarly, I also, honestly, I would have still kept some of that for us a future movie. Like I would have still kept a lot of you could have put everything that happens in this movie over the course of three films and because all my problems are fleshing things out. Cora is awesome. Olivia Wilde is fantastic as Cora. I just want more of her. Well, and similarly, you've got you've got uh, Kevin Flynn's seeming sacrifice of himself. Yes. Spoiler for this 10 year old movie that you should have watched before we started this episode. We're past two weeks. We're good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, his, his, he has to merge with clue in order to destroy clue. And that's going to create this big weird explosion that Flynn would never survive, but we don't get, we don't know that Flynn died right there. We don't right. know. They leave yeah, that. We to assume that. And, and maybe, no, think, and we, and we, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think I kind of agree where it's, this movie had a problem of too much plot and not enough plot at the same time. Like they tried mm-hmm. to feed too many different threads in and they didn't flesh out any of them. It, granted, this was sort of right at the beginning of the period of time where things like the MCU were starting to form where this idea of creating these threads and creating these movie franchises really was taking foothold. Like we'd had sequels, we had franchises before that, but this idea of plotting out and planning out your franchise was still fairly young and fairly infantile at the time. So I think had they like, you don't really even realize that Rinsler and Tron are the same person for most of the movie because they never really give you that. Like they show it, they show one, there's one moment in the flashback where Tron picks up a second disc and then he stands in the pose that Rinsler used. That's it. That's all you get. They don't even really say anything about it. And it's like, you could have, 
there's ways where you can have that kind of reveal happen better. I, I yeah, the stuff that I was able to give leeway to with the first Tron movie story wise, I give less to in this movie because we're 30 years ahead because right. we've had 30 years of writing of film producing on top of the fact that you've got to bring in new people. When you have that big of a gap between your movies, you have to make it accessible. And I feel like in, in Drew, you can talk to this a lot more having seen this movie before seeing the first one. If you come into it in, in this movie, this movie has to establish the rules of this world again. And I feel like they didn't do that because, you know, Tron, the first Tron, it's like 25 minutes of the movie before he gets into the computer. It's, it's more, more than, like, it's it's more than 30. It's, a, it, it's at least 31 minutes because I texted Miles uh, when when I was watching this movie for the first time. It's like I had the opposite reaction with with Tron that I did with Speed 2, where <laughs> uh, I I texted him an hour into the movie in speed two saying there's still an hour left of this. And <laughs> I texted him half an hour into Tron. There's only an hour left of this. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, yep. And, and, and that, that's actually his, his actual text to me was <laughs> this movie is the opposite of speed two. There's only an hour left. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's where, that's where this, that this watching this movie again, I saw Tron Legacy in theaters having never seen Tron. I am like the target market of trying to get new people in. And I was mm-hmm. probably more critical of the movie and the flaws in the movie. Like I, I remember watching Jeff Bridges in this movie thinking, oh, this digital dude, man. Oh, my whole <laughs> Zen thing. But having yeah. seen, but having seen the original after the fact, it gives me so much more appreciation for it. Like mm-hmm. the, the, I knew going into watching it this time that the Rinsler character was Tron, and now the first time you hear Rinsler speak, I can tell that that's Bruce Boxleitner's voice. Yeah. I can right, tell yeah. that. So I, I'm not like it works better the second time. It works better, and this is honestly probably where Disney Plus as an avenue for watching this stuff. Which yes, both of these movies are on Disney Plus because they're Disney properties. Mm-hmm. You can now go back and experience these things in a different way. And the things that I liked more the first time I saw the movie, like Michael Sheen's whole deal as, as Zeus caster, which is still Mm -hmm. fantastic. That Mm -hmm. was one of my favorite parts of seeing the movie the first time 10 years ago, but it wasn't my favorite part this time. I was well, I was more I was more excited that when they go to to uh, uh, Sam Flynn, which we got, we should probably talk about the main character of Tron Legacy, uh, Kevin Flynn's son, where we go to the the shack that he's living in, and it's Dumont shipping, and yeah. Dumont is the character in the first movie that was the 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 person who oversaw all the transit stuff in and out of the system. Yeah. Yeah, he was the old man who started the company in his garage. That's the garage. But you seeing it in 2010 for the first time, you have no frame of reference for that. So it's just him living in some thing. Yeah. No, anytime you make a sequel to a cult classic, you're already kind of in a rough spot because it's a movie that the fan base of that movie are going to be extremely rabidly passionate for. 
and they're going to they're going to look for everything but the general public may not have seen it so you have to walk that fine line of how much do we explain for the general public for the drews who haven't ever seen anything to do with tron versus the guys like travis who have seen tron who grew up with it who enjoy it you got to balance that out and it's really tough to do and i think that this movie it jumped in too quick into the world and didn't establish itself well enough for the new people for someone like me i liked it because hey get right into it i know all this stuff already but and and it's still i mean it made 400 million dollars so it's not like it was a bad movie and, and, but, that's, and that's the thing. Like, what what happened to this movie that they were clearly setting up sequels? We we talked before before we started recording about uh, uh, Killian Murphy's character, Dillinger's mm-hmm. son, the the bad guy of the first movie, has a son who works at Incom, and he's in yeah. one scene in this entire movie. And that's and that's it. He he says like two things, and and that's all his character does. And I feel like between that and the Tron stuff, they're setting up something. They are, but they're also they're not they're not piecing together what they have. I, I understand why they're doing this because they want to get everyone excited about Tron again, and they don't want to leave real dangling threads because if they don't get a second one then this movie's just, it sticks out like a sore thumb. That said, that does not fix the, not the creative problems, but there's a lot of stuff, even going back to Zeus. I really like Zeus, but I would have kept him alive until maybe the second movie and maybe Mm -hmm. have him kind of working with them and have that kind of Darth Vader um, Lando moment in the second film. Yeah. And... Like, I just let things breathe a little bit. And I, I know they couldn't do that at the time. So with Dillinger, it, it, even though he's in the movie for a very small amount of time, you already see him being set up as the anti-Sam. You know, mm-hmm. he's clearly very much his father's son. And you have to think, his father's legacy has been disgraced. He's probably had to scrap to get back into this company to be on top of the board there's probably still a lot of vengeance in his mindset and the way he carries himself. There's a cool anger there. And, and it's only because Kelly Murphy's as good an actor as he is that you can kind of pick up on that. And so as, as an Easter egg, it does feel a little bit like a slap in the face, but yeah, no, no, knowing what we know now, one that, that, that they, they definitely have plans for him, but also that, you know, this movie didn't get a sequel it's almost better that we didn't get too much kind of tapered off. I'd always heard that there was an idea for a trilogy for this, this series, but it's, it is to me, it's definitely one of the missed opportunities of the film. Well, and I think one thing that they didn't follow through on. So we had talked a little bit about how in the first Tron movie, you have characters that are in the real real world that also have an analog in the computer world, right? You have Mm -hmm. Alan and Tron, you've got Kevin and clue. Outside of Clue, they didn't do that in this movie. There is no analog there. And I mm, think that's a great that's point, yeah. opportunity because don't give us Dillinger's kid as part of the, the board for this company and then not have him in the computer world. It's like they, they had this disconnect between yeah. the two worlds that they, that they didn't have the first time around. Now, maybe that's because in the first movie, Drew, you had mentioned 
was an era of computers that was very much a um, you know mainframe and terminal access. So everybody is all on the same network. It's all on the same system. Maybe they didn't want, they didn't feel like that would work, but I, I think they should well, have kept it, that because it, they'd established that world and now they sort of went away from it a little bit. The ISOs are a cool idea. These like independently manifested mm-hmm. bits of programming, right? That aren't created by a user, but it's like, I don't know. There, there was a disconnect and there was something missing there. Give us, give us Killian Murphy in the computer world as some and, sort of a program. And this is, this is the thing where the, the grid in the first movie is Incom's whole system. The grid mm-hmm. in Tron Legacy seems to only be in the one computer in the Flynn Arcade basement. Yeah. And also, how did that have, well, I, well, I, how did that I, have power? Because uh, that was something I thought about. When... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we're on its own power system too. Who knows? But yeah, uh, there, there was one thing uh, about that that did kind of bug me. I'm trying to figure out what I was. I had something I wanted to say, but when you brought that up, I was like, oh, yeah, that did, that did have that. Plot holes. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, there there are, and again, I want to state, I really, really love this film, but I can also see this film as part of a three-film arc with some of these story bits saved for later. Travis, what you said, I hadn't even thought of, but what if the whole time at the beginning, they're talking about uh, NCOM's new OS. So what if he's like Clue's secret weapon? Yeah, Something that exactly. he keeps talking about, and then maybe at the end of the movie... Uh, either accidentally gets awakened, like maybe he doesn't have a part, but like you save that for later and he becomes the Darth Vader to his emperor. And you can have that cool moment where you still pay off Killian Murphy, but you don't have to do it all in this movie. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I have, I have a commentary on this and it's something it. that I feel like we need to probably talk about what happened after this and why this is a franchise folly. What happened to Tron? Because Tron made $400 million at the box office internationally. A tremendous amount of money on a $170 million budget, which is a high budget, but it's still... Yeah. And you also got to factor in they probably spent 100 on marketing because that marketing campaign was massive. It's it was a big marketing campaign. but More than twice the amount that, that it, is, it yes. cost. It is still a success. It is a successful film, and they clearly had sequels in mind. What happened? And this is where it's all speculation. And the thing that seems to everything seems to surround is that Disney had a lot of other live action properties that they were trying to push, like Tomorrowland, mm-hmm. that bombed so hard that they couldn't do anything with Tron. Now, that's not to say that they haven't done anything with Tron. The animated series, uh, Tron, uh, what was it called? I, Uprising. Uh, Uprising. Tron Uprising, which ran on the Disney Channel, which you can also watch on Disney Plus, only ran for a season, but had the voice talents of performers like Elijah Wood as the main character. Dude, well, I love Elijah Wood. Yeah. He always just seems down to clown for fun ideas. Like, I didn't realize like the level of people they had in this, because you have Elijah Wood. They bring back Bruce Broxleitner to play Tron. You have Paul Rubens, Lance Henriksen, uh, Mandy Moore, Reginald Vell Johnson. Like, oh man, you know, you, you, you got Carl Winslow, you got, you got Huey, like, come on. 
Um, I've only seen, I think, an episode, but I remember it being very good, too. I remember fans seemed to like a lot. But again, that only ran for a season. And I I, I don't want to say that it ended on a cliffhanger because I don't know, but I feel like it probably did. I mean, Disney has a tendency to do that with their shows sometimes. I just wonder if you're probably not that far off. And like they they put out Tron Legacy. It does fine. Like it's not a it's not huge gangbusters, but it's not a bomb either. So Disney is tentative. They're not sure what they want to do now. They're like, okay, this movie made some money, but it's not a guaranteed success that another one is going to make money. They, they do uh, they green light and do a series. A series is probably okay. But now they're like, okay, let's see what some of these other live action sci-fi things can do. So you got your Tomorrowland and some other stuff like that. If those do well, then I think you get another Tron movie before now. Like, I just think mm-hmm. that that happens. I think Tomorrowland bombing the way that it did because it didn't do very well. No, it cost one hundred ninety million dollars and made two hundred and nine. Which yeah, you they lost money. <laughs> if you're not making a minimum double your budget, you you are losing money. So so this is where and again this was some of this information actually came out as we were in planning for this episode. Uh, we were we decided to do this, and then all of a sudden, this information popped out as we were talking a little to Tron and Tron Legacy. Uh, there were early reports that there was a sequel to Tron Legacy being planned focused around Jared Leto. Some of that information came back up that, yes, they are still planning to have Daft Punk do the soundtrack, do the score. Good. And Jared Leto to, to, again, star in the picture. And this is stuff that came out two weeks ago. Uh, yeah. I, I think this is... And, and the reason I think this is likely that they're still planning on this is because two years ago, I went to Disney World with my family. And we're on Goofy's Rock and Roller Coaster. And we look out over there and we see where they are planning and with the big sign a Tron based ride in the magic kingdom in Disney world. It's apparently based on a Hong Kong Disney ride that has been there for years that it's a light cycle based ride. I think, um, although some of that may have changed, but, and it was, I think it's supposed to open next year, uh, though that might've changed based on what has happened in this wonderful year of 2020. Uh, there's still energy in Disney being put behind Tron. Mm-hmm. And and I think whether Lido ends up in it or not, I think that is still something that they are planning. So my question for you guys, if you have a Jared Lido based Tron movie, or even if you don't, what is your your Tron? Well, we just know he's in talks to be in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what's your, so what's what, your Tron legacy sequel? What's your idea? Well, so here's the thing is what if he's just supposed to be the new Ed Dillinger Jr.? He doesn't. He doesn't look dissimilar from Killian Murphy. That I could see. So, you know, I'm curious because the Tron Legacy ends with Sam and Cora getting out of the computer, right? Cora becoming yeah. uh, fig. They apparently have, however, they can get the program out into a body. We're just going to hand wave past that, like whatever. She, she's an ISO. It's it's how they figured it out. Yeah, that's how they do it. Uh, you know, because of reasons, right? Um. I wonder how much of the sequel taking a while in development and why we haven't seen it yet is a Olivia Wilde's career blowing up right between acting Mm -hmm. and directing that she's done. Yes. And B Garrett Hedlund being 
by far the weakest part, I think, of Tron Legacy. I he's fine. I don't I don't think that he was bad, but I also don't think he was that compelling of a character. Um, I also feel like he was written to be kind of standard. Like yeah. the, Sam has yeah, some very, pathos, but not much. Yeah, he's very milk toast. He's very just dull. Yeah, yeah. I was, I would jump off the screen. He's not and he's I, not Kevin Flynn, right? He, right. He's like the anti-Kevin Flynn almost. Ke- Kevin Flynn in the first movie is kind of loose. He's laid back, he's cracking jokes and all this. And this version, this Flynn is the darker, grittier, and it doesn't work, I don't think. I think well, well well part of my I, part of my issue with, with Sam is that they give him a few opportunities to show that he is just as smart and just as technically capable as his mm-hmm. dad, but mm. they never land on that enough. Like he uses his smartphone to break into the same big, Oh, that's a big door that his dad does. Yeah. And clearly, and, and it's presumably that was a great callback. It too. was I, a great callback. I, I love that. Great callback. But it's one of those things where, they don't really give him any other opportunity to show him doing anything other than like extreme sports, jumping off a building. Well, that's the thing is you build up this character who's kind of fighting the man, just like his, his dad would have. That's all he does. Like the rest of the movie. And again, I, I like the character. I think his plot points are fine. I think his actual writing, as Travis said, is milk toast because he's just along for the ride. He doesn't, mm do anything as soon as he's in the grid he is his his character being there does more than the actual character yeah like he and if it's not for Korra, he doesn't yeah and if cora doesn't intervene he doesn't get off the grid like he's dead in the light cycle right and i mean right. i like him. i like that he needs a little bit of time but you should have that kind of luke skywalker moment that hero's journey because if you're the son of flynn you should have some of that, you know, juice. Instead, she's carrying his ass around the entire movie, loses an arm at one point because the dude can't take a hint. And yeah, no, I agree. Again, I think that's just poor writing for the character. I don't think the movie's poorly written. It's just that. Yeah, there, I, there I, are I, some, I, yeah, there are some writing issues I have with this, like the whole caster Zeus bit for me watching it now feels contrived because he's only in the movie to betray them to clue. That's yeah. his whole purpose for being in the movie. And I, I'm not a big fan of characters that have no real purpose other than to, to do something like that. Like yeah. Lando it, it's, it, you know, Lando it, it, has that happen to him in empire, but it's not his fault. He gets tricked. He's not, uh, but this guy, like, presents himself as somebody who who was helpful but no I'm, I'm really not but I but he's also like not trusted yeah. by the guy but it's, however, a, it's a gotcha moment that I th- oh, go ahead drew if the if the the Tron uprising series had lasted long enough to introduce the the Zeus character and and do kind of a Clone Wars prequel trilogy thing I might have a different opinion about that um yeah but, I guess. I need to see that maybe because that, that takes place between the two movies, right? Yes. The, the uprising series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And well, the thing is again, and this is why I wish that some of this story was kept for a second movie. If you have him being helpful and just give him a little bit of character, like even that first conversation, have a little chit chat 
That's more than just me being dazzly David Bowie-esque and you just kind of sitting there staring at me. Like, I mean, yes, give him give him something, give us something to chew on a little bit. And then in the second film, have him betray them. Yeah, so, hold back some of your cards. Like, let him be helpful, charismatic, charming guy, but maybe with just a little bit of a, a curl in, a, in his smile or a little bit of a wink. Yeah. Like, you're not quite sure. Reveal that later. Give us a little bit of, of Dillinger's kid and maybe some hint that he has his, uh, he has a program in the system of some kind. Like, connect that, but but hold that back. Don't, don't fully reveal, don't lay all your cards out on the table at once. And this was like, they, they did that. They threw all their cards down and they thought they had a Royal flush and they had like a pair. Yeah. And, and it just didn't, things didn't land. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to tell you guys the perfect Tron three All right. Here it goes. In the first Tron movie, you have the world in the grid. And the concept of the user as a deity, a, a thing that, mm-hmm. that that the programs, some a lot of programs refuse to acknowledge even exists. And you have yes. you have Flynn coming in and and there is almost a religious experiment between him and Ram and him and Tron and, and all of this situation as he can do fantastic things. You have Tron Legacy, which is a world that fully acknowledges that there are users that have gone into their world, specifically Kevin Flynn. And you have Clue leading an uprising against him because the user went against what they were trying to do. Well, in this film, and I think Jared Leto would actually be very good at doing this, instead of program versus program, instead of program versus user, it's user versus user. Well, you know, you're not. I th- actually, I think it's a very cool idea. You, um, you have you have Jared Leto being an 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 evil user or like a like a cult leader that that has that has gone in. Maybe Sam Flynn has opened this idea to a select group of people, and 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 Leto's character is this this uh, sort of malicious, like a like a cult leader, like uh, that that has radicalize other users and other programs. And then you have either Cora or some other character that they've recruited to go in or Tron Tron. I fight for the users. I fight against the users. It would be an interesting yeah. thing. So you, you basically want Jerry Lee to play Job from La More Man two or yes. Or, uh, there you go. I, I could see that. That could work. There, there are elements of La More Man two that are really good. The movie is trash. But as I established last week and before, I love trash. Legitimately um, forgot that Lawnmower Man 2 existed until you just said well, So, Drew, you are not, enti- not not too far off. So, Cinema uh, Blood yesterday talked about some of the things that Tron 3 needs to keep in mind, or Disney needs to keep in mind for Tron 3. And one, that uh, the, the group that made Tron Legacy wrote a script called Tron Ascension. And mm-hmm. as uh, Kaczynski says, the movie's called Tron Ascension, and I think we got the script to about 80%. We were in good shape. We were probably about eight or mo- nine months out, which is still a long distance for being ready to shoot. What I'm excited about is the concept, which is an invasion movie from inside the machine. The idea for Ascension was the first act was in the real world. The second act was in the world of Tron. The multiple worlds of Tron, which I think is what you're getting at, Drew. 
And the third act is totally in the real world. I think it really opens up, blows open the concept of Tron in a way that would be thrilling to, to be seen on screen. But there's also a really kind of interesting character study in Korra, a stranger in a strange land trying to see where she belongs, having lived in both the real world for a few years and in growing up in the grid, where does she fit in? I love the idea that all of this is happening and Korra is kind of the new Tron. I think that's where the, the series should go. For but sure. it does take ideas from what you're talking about as another another world of Tron. Because I think that's really cool. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, basically, is I, I, th- I think the, my thing about Tron 3 at this point, because I would have just expanded the first movie into two and then have a third closing chapter. For Tron 3... They should do what Tron Legacy is, and do not forget the prior characters. Don't forget where this comes. Don't make. Don't reboot it. No, follow. Don't, don't reboot it. Let it. Let you know. Give. Give this world and this story closure. Yes. And I mean, especially if you have a script to a movie people liked, mm-hmm. and I can see with the right marketing and the right things happening. You know, assuming we're able to go to theaters uh, it, when this movie comes out, this could be it all on computer. So it'll be available before uh, we can get back. <laughs> I mean, this I could see this movie doing better. I think at that time, a lot of people were a little more hesitant to see a movie like this. And now that we've kind of really opened the doors on franchises as a whole in this last decade with Marvel and DC and everyone kind of just putting stuff out. I feel like this is the. I feel like Tron was. I, I, I Travis said it best. I think Tron Legacy was about five years too early. Well, and again, this is yeah. something where Disney knows how to make franchises now, and they made the yeah. Tron Uprising series after Tron Legacy. Before mm-hmm. they make another Tron movie, they could easily make a Tron series that leads into the movie. Oh, absolutely. So not only that, but. It- Everything Tron is so much more accessible now than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, you could mention Tron and like I said, it, you know, a cult classic. So it's going to have the rabid fan base. It's going to have the fans that got excited when they saw it in Kingdom Hearts and you can market to that. But now you've got Tron and Tron Legacy and Tron Uprising and it's all easily accessible in something like Disney Plus where you make a new movie, you market that, you market it on your Disney Plus service. Hey, this new movie's coming out. Check these out. Get ready for it. Yes. Like you said, give us a series that leads into it. So give us something to bridge Tron Legacy to this new Tron movie. And you know who would be open and willing to do that? Elijah would, 100%. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he would. Just Disney, if you're listening, and I know that you are, do me a favor. Don't cast Jared Leto, please. I... I I can't, I don't know. I can't see that working well I, for me personally. I just I don't I disagree. I, I do think, I think just from objectively standing, he is a good actor. But yes, he can be good in stuff. He can be good about, in movies. Everything about him otherwise just makes me tired and I don't want to deal yeah. with it. I, I don't want to. I don't want to hear that Jared Leto tried to plug himself into a computer to get in the headspace for this movie. Like, I don't want these dumb stories. Like, <laughs> again, I do think he's a, like objectively a talented actor, but I just don't want his shenanigans around Tron. It's just, I just don't need it. I, well, I'm with that, I don't. I don't think he's a fit for the aesthetic or the 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 
tone of what Tron is. Like he works in a in a character study. This isn't really a character study. Tron is much more about the the visuals and the aesthetic than it is the story anyway. No matter how good the story is, that's going to be right. second to the visuals on it. And it's if Jared Leto's in this, I think it becomes too much about Jared Leto being in Tron as opposed to the character that he is. Like yeah, I and I mean, he'll play the same kind of non non character bad guy that he played in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which a great movie. He's not bad in it, even though I feel like his character is kind of pointless. Um, he'll play that kind of cold, emotionless character that he plays a lot of times, and I just great. I don't know. Again, I think cult leader could work for him. But... He could, but, but I don't. But what if you had like, been... what if you had a great heel? What if it's Chris Jericho? leading the bad no, honestly, guys. you know what give me killian murphy let let killian I, murphy I, I, dillinger, I, I, I let his dillinger character create another system and that's what's going to try to invade flynn's uh the system that flynn was let part of killian murphy create tron 2.0 to save mm-hmm. flynn's system let let it be it that is. reversal uh, there you go. That could work. Oh, you you, you want the Palpatine and, reversal thing. Well, what that does, though, is that can bring some part of legacy back into this in that in that Killian Murphy's Dillinger initially wants to follow in his father's footsteps before he realizes maybe that, that that's not the right path to go about. Well, he, he, he would have, have had to realize that wasn't the right path to go about because what company is going to hire the son of someone who was so terrible for the company. But the thing was, Dillinger wasn't terrible for the company. That's true, that's he made true. the company a lot of money. That's true. It, what the problem was that the master control program got too big. That's true. And it got right. too smart and he right. couldn't control anymore. So there's there's redemption story you can tell in that. Like I like that better and and I like Killian Murphy better than Jared Leto anyway. Like oh, I 100%. incredibly compelling. He's so a great actor. Give me that. And but, I don't think know. he's really doing that much right now. If, oh, uh, is well, I don't remember what he, I know. Peaky Blinders, but that was a while ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, is that know, is that isn't that finished? They I keep no doing idea. Peaky Blinders stuff. There's a new one that just came out. Uh, but Killian Murphy is interesting because Killian Murphy was uh, a part of a number of films that were several years ago now uh, a trilogy of, of films starring a particular superhero. The Batman. Yes. And Miles, mm-hmm. as we wrap up our conversation about Tron and Tron Legacy for our franchise follows, it's perhaps time that we introduce the final franchise folly of this particular set. We're not talking about Killian Murphy. He's not going to appear in any of these movies, but we are going to talk about a night. 19- what if he does? What if he has a random like caveat like this? And we just never knew about he's, it. He's not he's not a little kid in uh in in the movie that ends up being Joffrey Baratheon. Um, <laughs> we are going to be talking for our final franchise follies. We've talked about a film that was two films that were surprise hits that had bad sequels. One that happened years later, one that happened right after. We've talked about a cult classic that had a sequel that both did well, but something happened and- in the mix. And their conception wasn't driven purely by corporate greed. It was driven by 
you know, people who really felt passionate about Tron. So mm-hmm. our final franchise folly is maybe the weirdest because it's not just a, a movie and its sequel. It's a movie and its sequels, sequels, sequel. <laughs> we are talking about Tim Halloween Burton. for the Return of Michael Myers. Ah, stop it, stop it, stop it. Got a t-shirt on right here. Stop it. <laughs> we are talking about 1989's Tim Burton's Batman and Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and so this is what's going to be fun. When I when I Drew and I were talking about this, uh, we had always planned to end our first franchise follies month because this is probably something we'll do again. There's enough follies, and this has been super super fun. <laughs> it's been um, as fun as it is challenging. <laughs> so uh, I, everyone knows that. I mean, we we with the first two weeks we have dealt with two movies that are often considered the worst sequel ever made. And this is one that I would almost call like the, in terms of mainstream jokes, the nickelback of sequels, because everyone seems to hate this movie. And the thing is, growing up, I I remember seeing Batman and Robin in 1997, and we'll talk about this more next week, thinking, it wasn't what I want to see, but I wasn't feeling, you know, vitriolic. And it wasn't until I kind of came home that 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 happened. But over the years, the conversation towards this movie has softened for some people. Not everybody. A lot of people still act that this movie is a joke. But Drew and I were talking about this, and we ended up having the same kind of thought process, and we were getting excited about doing this, is that the conversation has more torn towards if you like the Adam West 66 Batman and the 68 Batman the movie, this is a perfect follow-up and as someone who has not legitimately watched this movie in 20 years ish i've seen it playing pits and pieces like at a bar or something but i mean obviously that's not the best conditions to to watch this movie (laughs) although some some might argue differently i am excited to watch this movie with that lens and with that mind frame to see if maybe that changes my opinion about it i agree i am i remember Basically, like it's been it's been 20 years easily since I've seen Batman and Robin, the film. I'm not sure I've seen it since I was a teenager, which was a very long time ago now. And most of what I remember is the jokes, the things that have become jokes about the costumes and about Schwarzenegger's performance as Mr. Freeze and all of the 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 jokes and the cool outs and the chill and the, the nipples. Ah, it must be cold in here. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm I interested. So <laughs> <laughs> I hear this on my other show, our other show, the all the time. So y'all don't have to hear it as much. I do this voice a lot as my character on Cosmic Crit right now. <laughs> uh, Travis, what about you? What, what are your uh, lingering opinions on Batman and Robin while we've got you here? So you're not wrong in that if you like the campiness of the 60s Batman, that's what Batman and Robin is in film film form. And they really started that with Batman Forever, Schumacher's other Batman movie. Um, and it was it, I know from my research on the Batman movies, because I've I've watched all of them, I've I've done research on them in the past, like mm-hmm. that 
that move to do that was directly in correlation to how dark Tim Burton went with Batman Returns. Right. I recently, within the last year, rewatched Batman Forever. And because I, I always enjoyed that when I was younger, it came out at kind of a, a yeah. good time. It isn't as enjoyable for me now as it was. Like I see more of those flaws and Batman and Robin just, just amped it to 11. So I never got into that. And I grew up watching the campy 60s Batman show all day, every day. But then the but animated series happens reason, and I was like, that's Batman to me. Exactly. Exactly yeah. that. The animated series showed us that you can have something that is accessible to kids, but doesn't pander to them. And then the, Batman and Robin to me was too pandering and too much in that direction. Like it swung too far. Well, and, yeah. and, and that's so. what's interesting about Batman, the animated series tailing on to the Tim Burton Batman movies and then the Schumacher mm-hmm. movies coming out. It, it, this is going to be a very interesting conversation because we are only talking about the bookends. We might, yeah. we will probably bring up Batman. We'll mention Returns them, but I'm, I'm not doing forever, research on those two. Movies. But we're not. <laughs> we're, we are talking specifically about the two, the two movies because you have the '89 Batman movie as this groundbreaking, phenomenal thing, and you have and, Batman and Robin and, as and the, the movie that. For about thirty years, yeah, and you have Batman and Robin as the movie that stopped Batman movies for a decade. So yeah, it really you're looking at like the high and low points of comic book movies over the course of a ten year period or an eight year period. Yeah, right? and that's Batman eighty nine standard, and Batman and Robin tried to tank all of it and like <laughs> really made. I mean, it the, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I can't wait to hear that. And supposedly, as we, and rest in peace, Joel Schumacher, who just passed again. We had planned this before that happened, <laughs> uh, yeah. and the 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 information that there might be a three plus hour Schumacher cut of Batman and Robin. No, Batman Forever. Oh, it was a Batman Forever that was it's that Batman Forever. And I, I have I had been I had been reading about this cut for years. And had been hoping every time they did a blue uh, a DVD and then a Blu-ray of this movie that we would finally at least get some scenes. Some scenes were on a DVD, but they're supposed to be, I think, a hundred and eighty something minute cut Oof. of Batman Forever that was originally fairly dark, and the studio had them trim it down to where it was only the kind of bright stuff. Well, it took it took decades to get the Donner cut of Superman two, so we'll see what happens, but. Until next time, this is where we're going to end this episode of The More You Nerd. Travis, TV's Travis, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Tron. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I love these movies, and I love to talk movies, so this was a ton of fun for me, so thank you. Yes, and yeah, if, we'd if you guys, love to have you back. Yeah, if you guys have not checked out his stream and his podcast, you should do so. You might find us talking about Tron a little bit in more detail uh, and uh, uh, very fairly soon uh, if we can work yeah, that out. Might some be happening. Who knows? <laughs> you know, we'll see. Uh, maybe if you go check out Twitch.tv/tvstravis, uh, we'll we'll see. Um, we'll see. You'll see some some handsome boys doing their best. I, but you have another show that that has just started fairly recently that I wondered if you wanted to to promote while you were here. Yeah, so I did just start a new show um, with Audie Norman, and we are moving episode by episode through Highlander, the series. Uh, So it's called Let's Watch Highlander. We're four episodes in so far. Um, Our uh, current tagline is there can be only one. 115 more episodes to go. (laughs) Um, 
I, I love everything about this. I mean, we had an, like an hour long conversation before we recorded. Yeah. Syndicated television is, is is something that I have a very very deep love for. But I grew up watching. I went to a friend's house like every week to watch Highlander because he was he was my next door neighbor, so it wasn't difficult. And I mean, this that was our show. I love this show. I love everything about this franchise. We did Highlander two a couple years ago. And uh, with, uh, I think we did. Did we not, Drew? I'm shaking my head no with the concept of Highlander 2. I'm, oh, I don't remember. Because everyone dogpiled on me because I was the lone defender of this movie. <laughs> if we if we did talk about it on this show, I have blocked it from my memory because it was so traumatic. Um, no, so I'm not I alone super, in that. But. <laughs> I am super, super excited about this concept because I, it this is a, a kind of a, a cool, cool thing that I would love to do someday. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're having a blast with it. Like I'm just loving the nineties, early nineties syndicated TV cheese that this has it's, and the budget, oh. you can see the low budget and it's fun to go back and watch something and watch them try to find the characters like early on. They just don't know who they are yet. Like it's, it's awesome. So that uh, you can find that at anchor it's anchor.fm forward slash let's watch Highlander. Um, and we put those out once a week. So we, we just finished episode four that's coming out this week. Um, it's a ton of fun. I am just loving it. Awesome. I mean, syndicated nineties cheese is like chicken soup for my soul that it just, yeah. it, it is like being homesick and having the perfect remedy in bed. I, I, I love and, this kind of stuff. And, Maureen nerd listeners, you better believe there's going to be some syndicated 90s cheese happening based on miles and my conversations as we decided to bring the show back. Uh, But in the meantime, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us at the more you nerd on Twitter, facebook.com slash the more you nerd. And of course, you can always email us the more you nerd at gmail.com. That's the more you nerd at gmail.com. Until next time, we end the show as we always do with a rousing nerd out. End of line.